Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing great today, Tim. Thanks for asking. I hope everyone out there who's listening is doing great as well. They're going to be doing even better after they listen to this interview that we have coming up, even though the topic is a little unnerving because we're dealing with organizations in this country and in this world that kind of don't really have a whole lot of control over. But anyway, Tim, you have control over your mood and I want to know what that is. How are you? Well, thanks for asking. I'm doing great today. Yeah, I'm excited to speak with journalist Trevor Aronson. He writes for The Intercept, but he also does a great podcast called The Alphabet Boys. And it is about the CIA, the FBI, and everything you wanted to know about how these agencies act when they're conducting undercover investigations. Trevor is enormously talented. And if you want to learn more about Trevor, you can go to his website, trevoraronson.com. That's T-R-E-V-O-R-A-A-R-O-N-S-O-N.com. But Tim, if people wanted this episode, plus all of the other episodes, including the first half of the new series, Dark Valley, ad-free, where would they go? Well, our dear listeners can subscribe to Crawlspace Premium now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you're not an Apple user, you can go to crawlspace.supportingcast.fm and get the same product there. You'll get ad-free episodes, early releases, and our weekly bonus show, which everybody loves. And you can follow Trevor on Twitter at Trevor Aronson. And Tim, as long as people are out there following Trevor, where can they follow us? Folks can follow us on social media at Crawlspace Podcast or Crawlspace Pod. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. We're going to break quick for commercial here. We'll be right back with Trevor. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. Welcome to the podcast, journalist Trevor Aronson. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And actually, I don't know if I should be thanking you, but honestly, thank you for joining us. You have a fantastic show. It's a phenomenal show. But the reason why I said that about thanking you is because I don't, I'm so mad. Like your show makes me, <laughs> so, like it's so infuriating. But anyway, welcome. I hope everyone is going to hear this conversation and be motivated to listen to your show and learn everything that, that Tim and I learned when we listened to it. Great. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to talk about it. All right. Let's start by asking about your background. Yeah. So I, so I am tr uh, from a traditional kind of print newspaper background. I, I got my start maybe 20 some years ago working for alt weeklies in, in Southern Florida, in South Florida. And, and that's really where my interest in federal informants came to start and, you know, what informs Alphabet Boys as a series. And so, you know, in, in more recent years, in the last over the last 10 years, I've reported on the FBI's counterterrorism program. And I've been particularly interested in this question of whether in trying to find terrorists, the FBI using sting operations and informants were essentially creating terrorists by finding people who are mentally unstable, mentally ill, financially desperate, and offering them incentives to get involved in, in some sort of terrorism plot. And so what we've seen over the last really, you know, 10, 15 years in the, in the post 9-11 era is an expansion of these kind of entrapment schemes. And so a lot of my work over the last 10 years has, has focused on that and how these kind of entrapment schemes have evolved over time. So you mentioned your show called Alphabet Boys, and that title comes from the FBI, CIA, all of those government organizations. When you were getting involved with this and when you were getting involved with your print journalism as well, and this was something that you were going to tackle as a topic, was there any reservation? Yeah, I mean, I, when people ask me about that, I mean, the subtext of that question is like, are you concerned about like something, you know, 
a criminal investigation of you or something happening. And, and I, I joke like, you know, I've never even been audited by the IRS, but like, you know, knock on wood that, you know, that, that won't happen. But, but so far, no, I, I'd like to think we still live in a nation where, you know, federal security services and, and law enforcement are not going to be so bold as to like do vindictive investigations of journalists because of critical coverage. But, you know, certainly there have been, you know, stories in the last few years that make you question whether that belief is a sound one. Uh, but so far, no. I mean, you know, I have no reason to believe that, um, you know, that, that I've been a subject of any kind of investigation. That said, though, I mean, I think like reporting on law enforcement can be has its own hazards, right? I mean, that's true of whether you're reporting on um, federal law enforcement or if you're like a local newspaper reporter reporting on corruption in your local police department. There's always a, a fear that that something will happen. A lot of my coverage early in my career was on local police use of informants and law enforcement. I remember I was doing this investigation of the Hollywood Police Department outside of Miami and I was there in the office reviewing these internal affairs files. One of the police officers who was kind of my liaison for requesting records comes in and he, and he says, what happens sometimes is people get pulled over and lo and behold, they find cocaine in their trunk. I wouldn't want that to happen to you, right? And of course, it was just like a very, I, I took it for what it was, which was kind of like an empty threat. But of course, like in reporting on any sort of law enforcement, I mean, that's it's kind of a risk that's roughly in the back of your mind. But I, I try not to let it inform my decisions in my reporting because I feel like I don't want to pull punches either. Gosh, that's like so cliche, but so believable at the same time. Oh, like the uh, the cocaine in the trunk? Like, oh, you never yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I can imagine there are some serious risks to this. You dive really deep. How did Alphabet Boys, the podcast, come to be? Yeah, so one of the things that I felt really strongly about in, in wanting to do Alphabet Boys, as, as specifically as a podcast, was that in a lot of my reporting, what I was finding is that I would tell the story through the use of undercover recordings. And so in some way, what, what, what makes covering these stories so interesting is that not only do you have access to the people that were targeted in these investigations, but in many cases, you have access to these hours and hours of the actual FBI or DEA investigation. And that provides you not only with a window into what the targets of the investigations were doing as they interacted with the undercovers, but also in many times, in many cases, you have these uh, recorded periods where the agent is talking to the informant outside of the target of the investigation. So you get a window kind of behind the scenes of what's happening. And so what I realized too, was that in telling these stories as a writer, you could write about what was happening, but it was so much more authentic and interesting if listeners could actually hear these recordings. And so in that way, I think covering a lot of sting operations, it really makes sense to, to tell it as a podcast, because instead of just describing this, we can have listeners directly listen and hear what it's like, be able to decide for themselves whether the government's behavior is egregious in, in any way. And I, I think it kind of provides a multi-layered kind of storytelling opportunity where you can kind of show the investigation as it's taking place in real time through these recordings, but then pull back and interview the people involved and understand what was happening as this was going on. And really, honestly, what is going through your mind when you're discovering this in real time? A part of what informs Alphabet Boys, you know, you had mentioned kind of the, the title. I mean, the, so the title comes from obviously men who work for Alphabet agencies, the FBI, the CIA. And Alphabet Boys is, is obviously a derisive kind of nickname for them. And the reason that's chosen kind of intentionally is that what we're trying to do is really demystify this idea that federal law enforcement are these kind of perfect agencies that you see on TV, right? Like the FBI in particular has been very good at cultivating this image in American pop culture and media and TV and movies of this agency that's quite flawless and, you know, catches the bad guys and catches the serial killers. And in reality, when you look at 
their investigations, when you get access to these recordings, you realize that there's like a Reno 911 Keystone Cop style <laughs> aspect to all of these investigations, right? And that's really what we wanted to bring to the fore in Alphabet Boys was to just to show this combination of very, at times, like dangerous and intriguing investigations involving, you know, as in season two, involving an international arms trafficking conspiracy, but then, you know, juxtapose it with this kind of like ham-fisted behavior um, that you see in all of these undercover recordings, whether it's, you know, informants kind of, you know, in, in one case in season two, for example, the informant goes by Juan and the other informants accidentally use his real name in front of the targets. His real name was Alex. And fortunately, in that case, no one noticed. But it's the type of thing that you see happen in undercover investigations that I think is intriguing and funny all at once. And it's not at all the way that I think these federal agencies are shown in, in popular culture and, and media. And so that's really our goal in Alphabet Boys is to tell these stories that we think are very interesting, that raise really you know fascinating questions about law enforcement and undercover stings, but also have like a healthy dose of humor that is not our introduction. That is like humor that's coming by just showing the absurdity that happens in some of these cases. Wow. I can't believe you, uh, you went Reno 911. That's amazing. Um, no, but I think you're right. And uh, I think the reality is closer to a Coen Brothers movie, probably, you know, like Burn After Reading that, than anything. I think the FBI is deeply flawed. And in season one, you go into how beneficial it is to be an FBI informant. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because while you were talking about that on the podcast, I started thinking, hey, we might be great FBI informants over here at Crawlspace. You can make a lot of money. Yeah, you can make an excess of six figures pretty easily as an FBI informant. Sign us up. I, I think when a lot of people think of the FBI, they think wrongly that the FBI is, you know, they think of agents running investigations and kind of earlier periods of the FBI, that was more true. But if you think about it today, the, the FBI and the story of the FBI is really a story about informants. You know, there are more than 15,000 informants employed by the FBI at any time which is more than the number of agents employed by the FBI. And the, these informants are the ones who are going out and running these undercover investigations, pretending to be the bad guys in the sting or the ones coming, going into communities or into organized crime rings and bringing information back to the FBI. I should back up and say, I think when a lot of Americans think of FBI and FBI agents, they think of, you know, the Donnie Brasco story and the idea of the agent going deep cover. And certainly there are examples of that. And that's, that is something that, can happen today, but it's far more likely to happen that an FBI informant is the one who is acting as kind of the tip of the spear in, in any investigation. But there are real problems in that whole setup that aren't really dealt with in the way that the FBI is structured. And the, and the primary problem with it is that, that the incentives that FBI informants have are not necessarily in line with what you might think of as kind of justice in America. You know, an FBI informant, when he's brought on to, to work for the government is paid a lot of money, as I said, in excess of six figures a year. And they don't have a lot of lead time to kind of go in and come back month after month and be like, yeah, I didn't find anything. Everything's fine. Keep paying me, right? Like there is a direct connection between their ability to make money from the government and their ability to provide information to the government. And so there's an incentive for them to create crime, to exaggerate information that they provide to the government in order to keep getting their, their money from the government. And what, what makes that problem even, even worse is that most likely, you know, you, me, and many of your listeners, we, we would not make very good FBI informants, right? What the FBI really is looking for are, you know, people who are criminals and con men who have access to people that they can investigate or are people who are used to playing these criminal roles. And so as a result, oftentimes the informants that are employed by federal agents are criminals themselves. 
And they don't really much care if they're kind of trap entrapping innocent people or exaggerating crimes against someone because this is in many cases is how they make their money. What FBI agents and other federal law enforcement agents will tell you is that choir boys don't make good informants, right? There's a, a statement that will, goes around the FBI, which is to say, to catch the devil, you have to go to hell, right? And so the idea is that, you know, you can't send the choir boy in to, to find the devil, you have to find your own devil. And that's very much what happens with informants. And then the challenge is that the FBI has to make sure that these informants who are maybe sociopaths, career conmen, liars, that the information they're giving to them isn't a lie as well. And so there is this really this back and forth. At the same time, of course, FBI agents, like anyone who has a job, are, are incentivized by doing that job, right? Like as a journalist, if I reported out a story for months and I came back to my editor and I was like, oh, there's no story here, I'm not going to stay a reporter for very long. That same kind of incentive structure works for FBI agents who are handling these informants, that there is a need to produce results. And a result of kind of the post 9-11 FBI is that it's a mixture of a criminal investigations agency and an intelligence agency that's looking to stop terrorism and other mass casualty events, but that it is measures its success by the metrics of law enforcement, arrests made, cases prosecuted, convictions. And as a result of that, it incentivizes in many ways informants and agents to pursue cases that at times can be quite questionable. So intricate. Is there any way to actually confirm and ensure that an informant isn't elaborating or exaggerating the crimes? Who is the ultimate person who's like, nope, this is legit? And we don't need to have any further action to investigate or research into what this person's telling us. Yeah. So a callous way that I've heard some FBI agents describe this is like, is very much like, well, the justice, the courts will sort this out. You know, this is not for us to decide. And I I find that very callous in the sense that I, I think there is a moral obligation for FBI agents to decide whether their investigation is pushing people toward committing crimes that they otherwise wouldn't. And so in, in season one of Alphabet Boys, we tell the story of this informant named Mickey Windecker, who infiltrated the racial justice movement in Denver and tried to set black activists up in crimes. And, and one of the people he targets is a man named Zeb Hall, and eventually coaxes Zeb into purchasing a gun for him. And Zeb admits that, you know, he shouldn't have done it. Mickey, the informant was a felon. So that was a crime. He was transferring a, fe- a firearm to a felon. But the, the context of that, though, is that Mickey was a guy who claimed to have killed people. The idea of violence was kind of integral to his identity. There was always this perception that if you crossed him, something might happen to you. And in Zeb's defense, what he says is like, I was scared of this guy. He wanted me to buy a gun. And so, so I did it. And so I think the, the question for agents in a, in a situation like that is like, did they create a circumstance that allowed a crime to happen that wouldn't have otherwise were it not for their introduction of the informant, their creation of the entire scenario that allowed this crime to happen. And in many cases, that is what happens. The challenge, I think, and, and the reason that these these kinds of cases are rewarded is that when they get to juries and they go to the court, the law is pretty clear. You know, if you're charged with a conspiracy, if you're charged in Zeb's case of buying a firearm for a felon, if you did it, you did it and you're guilty, whether the FBI kind of set up that scenario altogether. You know, what the courts have done over the last you know decades is found that it's very difficult to argue entrapment at trial. You basically have to argue that the government fully overwhelmed your will and that you would not have committed that crime were it not for the government's intervention. And I think that when people like me and others look at these cases, our judgment is that that probably is the case. This crime wouldn't have happened were it not for the government's creation of the scenario. But it, it usually isn't able to meet the bar that the court has set for entrapment. And so as a, as a result, convictions are made. And so it just it, it creates this situation where 
these agents are incentivized to do more and more of these types of sting operations. Season one is is absolutely riveting stuff. Great journalism, and uh, I really I really can't believe that the government was paying this Mickey guy monthly thousands of dollars to do what what he was doing. He seems like a really dangerous guy. It's important to realize too that you know the the FBI often hires people who have really shady backgrounds. There are a couple of ways that you can recruit someone as an informant. One is to pay them money, and you can pay them lots of money. But the more common trajectory of an informant is that that informant commits a crime and gets hung up and then works off that charge by being an informant. And then they stay on after that by receiving payment for future services. And someone like Mickey, as, as we revealed, was the earliest interaction that we can document of his cooperation with the police is when he was in prison for a menacing charge. He's approached to uh, commit a murder for hire in prison. And instead of committing that murder for hire, he becomes a cooperating witness against the people who are trying to hire him. Over the years, it, it appears clear from his history that he learned that you can make a lot of money being an informant for local police, for the FBI, and for someone who has a felony record, someone whose you know professional skills are probably somewhat limited. Employment prospects aren't great, especially compared to when you can get paid six figures to provide information to law enforcement. What, what you see in a lot of these cases is that informants like Mickey make a career out of being an informant. And that obviously raises questions about like whether the people that they're bringing to the FBI are really criminals in the sense that the informant has made a career of this. So he's going out searching for people, not so much kind of being involved in any sort of criminal enterprise and then reporting that back to the FBI. The informant has a direct financial incentive to create the crime or, or you know, identify the target. With Alphabet Boys season one, did you potentially threaten his livelihood? Possibly. You know, I can tell you from previous, you know, reporting, I, I had reported on this counterterrorism informant named Shahed Hussein, who was involved in a number of high-profile terrorism investigations. I, I wrote stories about his background, published photos of him, thinking like, you know, there's no way that this guy can work for the FBI anymore after this kind of publicity. And that wasn't the case because then he wound up in Pittsburgh, uh, you know, in, a, in another case years later that I heard about. And so that that is the challenge. I mean, to a certain extent, you know, maybe it would have put at risk his ability to work as an informant given the publicity of the show. At the same time, though, there's nothing really stopping him from going to another city, taking on a different name and, you know, working as an informant as well. I would imagine that he probably shouldn't be driving around in a silver hearse as he did in Denver because that's pretty emblematic. But uh, at, at the same time, though, I, I don't think that necessarily prohibits him from working for the FBI. So it's hard to know whether he would continue to work for the FBI at this point. And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsors. And now we're back to the program. I think one important element that you lay out right off the bat is the year 2020. We say it as sort of a joke now that 2020, you know, could it get any worse in 2020, you know, with the pandemic and all of that. But you did a really good job breaking down all of these moments that happened in this country leading up to this. Could you get into that a little bit here? Because I think it's important to understand the headspace where everybody was at, how charged it was. Yeah, you know, I think we can look back and, and see 2020 is very much an inflection point, right, in this country, you know, maybe in a way that like kind of, you know, shifted kind of the historical tide in a way similar to 9-11, to in the sense that, you know, this was a presidential election, right? It was this very tumultuous race between Joe Biden and, and Donald Trump. We we're in the middle of a pandemic. And then, you know, George Floyd's murder in Minneapolis sets off this protest around the country. And I think there was this real feeling, I felt it, I imagine a lot of Americans felt it, that like things were changing in a way that seemed at times good and seemed at times uncomfortable. 
and you just felt like this was a year that we were standing at the precipice of this huge change and it didn't you didn't know how to feel about it not only you know was the the racial justice process going on but then when is this pandemic going to end how many people are going to die in this pandemic and i think there was just a lot of fear at that time leading up to the racial justice movement in 2020 you know one of the things that had happened under the trump administration was that they had come up with this this term called black identity extremism which was a belief that black activists who were protesting police violence could cross a line toward domestic terrorism and so they they basically defined this idea as as a ideology under the rubric of of domestic terrorism in the FBI this was met for all the right reasons by criticism in the media and on Capitol Hill and so the FBI kind of took a step back and and folded it all under this category called racially motivated violent extremism that includes uh, white supremacists and, and, and far right groups. But at the same time, even though they made this change internally within the FBI, there was a belief that these racial justice protests could turn violent. You know, the second in command of the FBI compared the racial justice protests to 9-11 and that agents needed to run toward the danger because there was there was stuff to investigate. And so that was really the the landscape that existed when Mickey Windecker, the informant in Denver, goes to the FBI and says, I can infiltrate this movement and, and go in. And, and I think, you know, what we tried to reveal in episode one or, or season one of, of Alphabet Boys is that we could document what happened not only in Denver, but also in Colorado Springs. But it's unlikely to assume, I think it's it's unreasonable to assume that this was somehow anomalous, that this is only happening in Colorado. You know, there were reports of similar activities by informants in Minneapolis and Seattle, it really across the country of people that were acting very suspicious and a belief that they were somehow working with the government. Whether they were really deserves a lot more investigation. But the larger point of this, I think, in what we tried to show in, in the first season, what we're seeing in the use of stings and informants in the racial justice movement is really an importation of the tactics that came out of the drug war, came out of the war on terrorism. And, you know, now that both of those wars are very much waning, you know, we're seeing it applied in, in, in other in other ways. And if you look back at, you know, the, the criticism that came post 9-11 of the Patriot Act and others, you know, a number of civil liberties activists were saying at that time, you know, how long is it going to be before the government uses these kind of post 9-11 powers against non-terrorists, against political activists, against people who have unpopular views? And we're beginning to see kind of shades of that in the summer of 2020 with this type of activity. I can't tell you like how important that is to hear. You know, I mean, you know, because you're the one doing the reporting on it. But these are conversations that have happened every generation in this country. I mean, what did, what did you say your wording was people who have just different ideas? Unpopular ideas, yeah. Yeah, unpopular ideas. When should we ever be afraid of having an unpopular idea? That's why I was so angry listening to it. It's not the show. It's like it's everything a person has said in the past that is coming to fruition now. And it's so frustrating. Yeah, and I, I think it's worth noting, you know, it, it was the, you know, the topic of stings in general and, and federal law enforcement stings, which is the kind of overriding theme of all of Alpha Boy's seasons. You know, in the 1970s, the FBI ran this sting called Abscam. They, they made a movie about it called American Hustle. They had this informant pose as, a, as an Arab sheikh who was bribing elected officials. And, you know, they, they caught a bunch of elected officials taking bribes for legislation that would have benefited this supposed sheikh's company. And when those indictments came down, there was it was outrageous. Like, how could you entrap a bunch of elected officials? And the American Civil Liberties Union came out and a number of media organizations and politicians came forward. That was kind of the beginning of this shift. And then shortly, a few years after that, you have the, the sting operation against John DeLorean, the former auto executive, who ends up getting acquitted. But even in that trial, the American public was really up in arms about this idea that federal law enforcement would be creating crimes, would be creating these sting operations 
to entrap people in crimes that they otherwise wouldn't commit. And then so this has only been what, you know, 40 years that, you know, we've had this shift where Americans have basically come to accept this as standard operating procedure, that it's okay to do this. You know, you see sting operations portrayed in TV and movies. And I think it's worth remembering that we weren't always okay with this. Like there was a period of time where we thought this was egregious law enforcement behavior. But I think institutionally over the last 40 or so years, we've just come to accept this as this is this is how law enforcement does business. And I think that's a that's a that's a really unfortunate position that we've come to be in. And I think part of the problem there, too, at least for me, like internally, is that I feel like some of them are OK and some of them are definitely not OK. I think everybody has their own personal feeling on which ones fall into that category, those categories. The challenge with sting operations is like the differentiating position can be, you know, if the FBI weren't involved or the the law enforcement weren't involved in the sting, could the crime happen, right? So you can make an argument, for example, that maybe drug stings are okay, because if you're pretending to be a drug seller, a drug dealer, and someone doesn't buy it from you, there's plenty of other drug dealers who you could buy drugs from, right? So, you know, that's the argument there. But the situation with terrorism is very different, right? Like, or, or high level crimes. If an FBI agent working a sting operation provides you with a stinger missile, you can't get that stinger missile from another source, right? Like there's no criminal network in the United States. It's like, hey, we've got stinger missiles. The government is the only one making those kinds of crimes possible. And I think that's really kind of the differentiating point for some of these sting operations. For season one, you you were given some tapes by an anonymous source. Is that uh, correct? So season one is based largely on a, on a leak of material that came to me that had to do with the FBI's investigation in Denver. So there were about... 12 hours of undercover recordings. And, and these were the, the the recordings that Mickey Windecker, the informant, made, you know, using a body camera um, as he went in to investigate people. What was your thought process when you uh, you got, I, I, maybe that, that was a trusted source for you. You had to realize you were sitting on, on a really big story, obviously. Obviously, when you work on a project like this, and, and as you know, like podcast, there's a lot of like pre-production and post-production work. So ultimately, but from the time I got the material to when the show came out was about a year. And there was a part of me that struggled with that because there was a fear that like, well, what if someone else r- obtains these materials or or scoops me in some way? But at the same time, we, I felt that it was really important to not only kind of reveal this information, but reveal it in a comprehensive and compelling way. And so in that sense, we thought it made the most sense to do it as a podcast where we could put together and tell that story over 10 episodes. When I first received the material, you know, the backstory for me in this is that you know, as I'd mentioned, I'd, I'd covered the use of these sting operations in the counterterrorism context. And I remember when the summer of 2020 happened, I remember thinking, given the FBI's previous designation of black identity extremism, there was this question in my mind that they might choose to use these types of tactics against racial justice activists. At least that was a theory. And so when I finally obtained these materials, in some ways, it was kind of like vindication in my own mind that this theory that I'd had that they would do this ended up being right. Like they did exactly that, that they used these tactics that they'd refined in sting operations in the war on terrorism in order to apply them against against racial justice activists. And, you know, and I should say, like, the FBI is not this, like, monolithic agency. You know, I think it's important to remember that, you know, not FBI, all FBI agents agree about everything, right? Like any agency, it has a number of people who have very differing opinions. When you see stories like this, it doesn't mean that the FBI is all for what the FBI did in Denver. I mean, there, there are agents who are really concerned about the, the trends that they're seeing within the Bureau and, and the way the Bureau is operating. And those are agents that are able to assist reporters like me in understanding 
you know, what's happening inside the Bureau as we're reporting on it. I'm wondering how relationships like that get to a level where they feel comfortable talking to yourself like a reporter, knowing that they can say something in confidence and they can say something that you're free to talk about on a on another podcast. How do you get to that relationship level? Yeah, it takes a lot of time and trust, obviously. You know, s- some of it happens just you you meet people and you can make introductions. Uh, in other in other cases, you know, government officials, you know, this is true, I think, of any journalist who covers um, specific topics is that government officials will see that you're the person who has carved out some expertise in a specific area and you're the one to, to talk to. You know, I, I do want to note, and this is this is an important issue, I think, is that in recent years under the Obama administration, particularly, we saw the use of the Espionage Act to go after sources. And there, there really has been a concerted effort in recent years to create a chilling effect for government officials talking to journalists, you know, that that sources are now being charged with the Espionage Act. You know, that's a really troubling thing. And I think it has made my work and, and, other, uh, and other journalists who report on these agencies, it's made it a lot more difficult because when you speak with someone confidentially, especially someone who's working in government, you know, you want to make sure that you are protecting them as much as possible. But in a, in a digital world, even with encryption, you know, the smallest mistake can reveal a source. And so if you have a government that is investigating sources based on, you know, Espionage Act powers, it, it creates a, a situation where even as careful as you might be, you, you run the risk of revealing your, your source. And I think that's caused a lot of, you know, people who might otherwise talk to me and other journalists to be really resident to do so for, for all the reasons that are easily understood, right? Like they don't want to go to jail. They don't want to lose their livelihood. And I think that really is a problem because I think a healthy democracy, a healthy nation is one where you would have, you know, people within agencies going to journalists and expressing concern confidentially to say like, this is what's happening inside the agency and allowing the journalists the opportunity to investigate that. And that that is what happened in Denver, right? The, by, by obtaining these materials, I was able to reveal what the FBI was doing, which some FBI agents find quite troubling. But I think it's, it's becoming harder and harder to do because of the, you know, the, the kind of war on leaks and the war on um, sources that we've seen throughout administrations. This isn't a partisan thing. You know, Democrats are as guilty as Republicans in pursuing sources and trying to create a chilling effect where journalists like me really struggle to communicate and work with sources for fear of their prosecution. And has anything happened in regards to the, the story in season one uh, since season one stopped airing? We did locate Mickey, uh, although he has not, he's continued not to, to cooperate with us. The last we'd heard was that he was in Florida working as a, as a carny. You really can't make that up. And uh, the ACLU is now involved in Denver in looking at possibly um, some sort of lawsuit against the FBI and or the, the city of Denver police. Wow. Fantastic. A carny. A carny. <laughs> what is he doing as a carny? I, I'm not sure. You know, I, I don't know that part. The backstory of this is someone who knew his new girlfriend sent us her her Facebook page and there were a bunch of videos and photos that were not private. It documented a bit of their life over the previous few months working at a carnival in in Florida. Whether he's working as a carnival and working with the FBI, I, I don't know. But for a time, it did seem to suggest he was working as a carny. But would it surprise you if there was some government agency working with him in relation to this carnival work? Would it surprise you at this point? I mean, that would be a great additional season, right? Like the investigation, federal investigation involving the carny and like some sort of like, I mean, that's really a movie waiting to, waiting to happen. Now you are talking like Coen brothers. <laughs> Exactly. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. And a thank you to our sponsors. Back to the program. 
tell us about season two of the Alphabet Boys. I understand it's uh, it's coming very soon, June 2023. Yeah, it comes out at the end of this month in June 2023. It's about a man named Flavio Georgescu. And what, what's really fascinating about this story is that it's a sting like we, we documented in season one. But, it, but in this particular case, Flavio is contacted by a Colombian who asks him to broker this international arms deal for the FARC what was then the the, the the rebel group in Colombia that was then a designated terrorist group in the United States. And Flavio calls the CIA and reports the whole thing and says, this guy from Colombia called me. He's interested in buying weapons. Do you want me to look into this? And Flavio at the time was a former FBI informant who had worked successfully with the FBI in Las Vegas. And so had reason to think his information might be, you know, terms credible. Ultimately, Flavio is arrested for brokering this arms deal and the question we we kind of put to in the season is whether Flavio really was working for the government, was working for the CIA and providing information, or as the, the government would later allege in, in his prosecution, he had created this as a kind of cover, an insurance policy in the event that he was ever, ever arrested. And so when he ultimately is arrested for brokering this arms deal, he tells the Drug Enforcement Administration who were arresting him, I'm working for the CIA. And the question we try to ask and reveal over the, the 10 episodes is this idea, was Flavio really working for the CIA or was it this cover? And I think what's really interesting about the show is that like season one, it relies heavily on the undercover recordings, in this case from the DEA, to to reveal you know, not only the investigation itself, but also this very you know strange world that most people never get access to of how like an international arms deal happens, of how someone from Colombia could purchase military grade weapons from Eastern Europe and how they would then be shipped and who's involved in all of those transactions. And so it's a really kind of interesting behind the scenes look at how international arms trafficking happens and the role that federal law enforcement agents play in trying to stop it. I don't know why this occurred to me, but I didn't think about this question until you were explaining the international arms trafficking. This might sound like a really dumb question, but in this day and age, we can go on Amazon or another website like, and we can just order something and it can be here tomorrow. Is there anything like equivalent to that when you're talking about dealing in, in arms? Is there like a database or something that criminals have access to? There may be. I'm not familiar with the database. But what's interesting about arms, arms dealing in general and, and arms trafficking is, you know, the, the entire global market for arms, you know, involves like governments purchasing weapons from different factories, a lot of them are in Eastern Europe. Obviously, the United States makes a lot of weapons. The vast majority of it is legal, is is you know well regulated, and so these arms fact these arms factories and manufacturers have catalogs that are very similar to like you know an old Sears catalog or any kind of catalog with all of the products. Glossy magazine that shows what the what the different weapons are and the specifications. You know there are contracts. It has all of the trappings of a kind of a normal business, even though you're talking about you know military grade weapons that cause harm all around the world. Um, there, there very much is this kind of very business-like industry that exists. And so of the total global arms trade that is legal, about 1% of it is illegal. And that's the arms trafficking aspect of it. But the way it's illegal also has trappings of a real business. You know, the Colombian FARC rebels in the, in the story we tell are flipping through the catalog of, of arms that they want to purchase. And the way that the arms are then shipped you know, there's this international regulatory document called an end user certificate that basically means that if you go to a factory and you have an end user certificate and it's for a country that is legally under international regulations able to receive those weapons, they can then purchase those weapons and then ship them over. 
But what happens is that factories will know that the end user certificate that they've been presented is false. So for example, in the case that we reveal, the end user certificate that the people involved have says the weapons are going to Ethiopia, but ultimately it's the destination is, is Colombia. And so the guns will then be diverted from Colombia, from Ethiopia, if they even make it there in the first place. What we know about international arms trafficking is that in many cases, these arms manufacturers, particularly in Eastern Europe, will kind of like with a wink and a nod say, okay, yeah, it's going to Ethiopia, knowing that the guns are going elsewhere. And so, you know, when you look at conflict zones around the world, Syria, the Syrian civil war being an example you know, that's in many ways how these guns are flowing into Syria is that they're coming, you know, not from, you know, the back of trucks being snuck across borders, but they are, you know, using the same, you know, delivery channels that legitimate arms are used, except that they're using forged documents or the the level of corruption involved to get those those weapons there. And so that's kind of the world that we try to pull the curtain back on in, in season two. Glad you had such a great answer to that. I had no idea. Well, yeah, it wasn't a dumb question at all. Yeah, no, I, you know, actually like my colleagues in working on the show, I mean, that was some of their reaction too, was just like how weird it was. Like in the, in the opening scene of the season, Flavio is holding a, a contract for the weapons. And like some of my colleagues were just kind of floored by this idea that like, this is an illegal arms deal. There's, there's a contract, you know, and, 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 I, and it is kind of an interesting aspect of all this. I did actually think it was a dumb question. Uh, <laughs> full transparency. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Um, in, your, uh, in your work, wh- which is the most problematic um, agency that you've uh, come across and uh, why? That's a great question. So uh, on sheer numbers, you know, the FBI pursues the most cases. And so, you know, if you're looking at like problematic cases, I mean, if you're just basing it, you know, the more cases you do, the more potential for problems, you can kind of point to the FBI in, in that way. But I would say like some of the more egregious ones you see are really kind of the DEA and the ATF in particular, or some of the kind of undercovered agencies, you know, the, the ATF for a long time got away for years with running this program called Stash House Stings. And so they basically they overwhelmingly targeted or, or disproportionately targeted people of color. Uh, they would find mostly young black men and say like, hey, by the way, there's this house down the road and there's like, you know, $500,000 of cocaine in it. There's a bunch of weapons. You guys should go rob it and give me a piece of it. These guys, you know, seeing this kind of change your life moment where they might be able to make a ton of money, go into this house, the stash house and, and try to rob it. And of course, there's no drugs there. There's no money. It's all part of an ATF sting. And then they arrest them and you know charge them. And so the ATF for years, you know, and despite some federal judges pointing out that this was a very racist program and its disproportionate targeting of, of Black Americans, you know, we're we're doing that for for years and you know throwing people behind bars for creating these situations where maybe they were criminals. They were they were kind of low level petty thieves. But then the FBI makes it possible for them. Or sorry, excuse me, the ATF makes it possible for them to commit this really egregious crime. You know, as much as the FBI has its own problems, I think you see a bit more of a cowboy mentality in some of the ATF and and DEA investigations. And I also think it's worth noting as well that there's a real kind of rivalry and competition among the agencies that, you know, the FBI and the ATF and the DEA, like they all compete for funding. Um, They all compete for kind of publicity and publicity gets funding. You know, there is a certain incentive for all of these agencies to do these kind of like high level busts get press in the newspapers and, and on television and then use it when they go before Congress for funding to, you know, talk about these great cases that they have made. As I said, I think you see the ATF and the DEA kind of taking riskier bets than the FBI might otherwise. That's ridiculous. So they need the funding. So they will 
organize a sting operation and they will put somebody in a position, probably someone in a minority group to take the fall for something that they set up in order to get their funding, to get the press, to get their funding. So that's pretty much what it comes down to is just to ensure that they're constantly funded for the most part. Yeah. I mean, I will admit that that is a cynical take, but I think it's the right one. You know, every, every year the FBI goes before Congress and is looking to maintain its budgets, right? Every, every government agency does that. And a great way to, you know, show that you are doing great work is to present the cases that, that you are doing. And so, you know, what we see, for example, in the post 9-11 era is the FBI gets billions and billions of dollars for counterterrorism. And if you look at their congressional testimonies, you have high level senior executives of the FBI going before Congress saying, here are the cases and the plots that we've, you know, subverted and, and busted. In the vast majority of cases, those are actually sting cases where they kind of put together everything to make it possible. The story that we tell in season two is really related to this, which is DEA narco terrorism stings. The quick history of this is that the war on terror very much eclipsed the war on drugs. And the DEA was getting tons and tons of money for the war on drugs. And then 9-11 happens and the war on drugs are kind of put into the back seat. And the DEA is finding itself in a position where it's missing out on the big funding in town, which is terrorism. And so in 2006, they go before Congress and they say, there's this narco terrorism problem. It's the problem of nar- of terrorist groups like the FARC using you know drug proceeds and like cocaine from cocaine to fund their violence. And you should give us lots of money to investigate this. And uh, they do. They, they end up getting billions of dollars from Congress to investigate narco-terrorism. And it's a real debate whether narco-terrorism is a real thing. You know, you know, to what extent drugs are funding terrorism is quite debatable. Yet the DEA, after getting this funding, then pursues a decade of so-called narco-terrorism stings, where they go around the world pretending to be FARC representatives looking to buy weapons so that they can claim this connection between cocaine trafficking and, and terrorism. And that connection is, you know, if you talk to experts, you talk to people who study this, that connection is very tenuous. And yet the government kind of, in order to justify its funding, you know, pursues a lot of these cases. And so you see that across agencies. Uh, The challenge from an oversight perspective is that in many cases, congressional officials are really hesitant to push back on a lot of this for fear of like running for reelection in two years and coming across as soft on crime, soft on terrorism, soft on drugs. And so, you know, in many ways that these agencies have been allowed to kind of inflate their their numbers by creating crimes and these stings and then presenting it to Congress and the public as, you know, justifications for their funding. How one would be cynical in this world is a mystery to me. <laughs> you also have another show out, American Isis. Yeah, American Isis is on, on, on Audible. And that was, uh, you know, like a lot of people who work in narrative podcasts, I, I came from a print background. And that was my first, the first podcast I'd worked on. And in, in that particular case, very different story. It's a, the story of this man named Russell Dennison, who was a tangential figure in an, um, a case, an FBI case that I'd investigated years earlier. I'd actually at one point suspected that he was an FBI informant. And during that initial reporting, I had reached out to him based on an email address and never heard back from him for the first story I was working on that was tangentially related to him. And then years later, I get this contact from him wanting to tell a story. And it turned out he'd been living in Syria for, at that point, four years, You know, was a member of ISIS as an American, had been with the group since its early formation in Syria, uh, was living in Raqqa, and you know, basically was in this position where, you know, the walls are closing in. I think he realized he was going to die and wanted to tell a story. So for about six months, we communicated um, in secret through WhatsApp messages. He would send me uh, recordings. And and over time, you know, I think it was 
I don't know, maybe like 40 hours of recordings that he'd sent me um, that then formed the basis of American ISIS, where it's, you know, telling his story, but then kind of the unique circumstance of my communications with him over that period of time. And I think what it did, what it did, and, and I'm proud of the show, is it, is it really kind of revealed kind of the complicated truth of the, the war against ISIS and, you know, the challenges of America trying to counter kind of extremist groups like ISIS. I just have one final question, and it's more of an opinion, really. If I were to get stopped by the police for speeding, would you recommend that I maybe tell the police officer that I'm working in a sting operation for the CIA to uh, stop people going over the speed limit? Would that be a good thing to do? You could try. I don't know how effective. I mean, Flavio would tell you that it isn't that it isn't an effective strategy. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you could try. I mean, you know, look, I was sorry, officer. I was speeding because it's part of a CIA operation, and there's a bad guy down the road. I was chasing. You got to let me go. Uh. And then I'll give them your number, and I'll and I'll say this is my right. this is my directing officer. If you just want to contact him. <laughs> wow. Well, uh, Trevor, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us here today. Uh, we really appreciate uh, your show and uh, great work on these shows. Thanks. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs>